Amen. Well, thanks so much. We certainly appreciate that. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, turn with me in your Bibles. Go right ahead. We're going to dig right in and uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Titus, the book of Titus. Uh, and uh, we're excited to be exploring this book. Um, this book is one of three pastoral, pastoral epistles, letters that Paul wrote. And there's many the same themes that we visited in First and Second Timothy. And, uh, uh, but uh, I believe as I was uh, reading over it and studying it this week, uh, it has an amazing word for us. And so as you turn your uh, Bibles uh, to Titus, let's pray together. Lord, thanks so much for uh, just having the opportunity to be here and to open your word and to go through it, Lord, and to be uh, changed and transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord, help us to do that here today. Give us perspective on all the things that are happening in this world. And Lord, the, uh, the, the mission that you want us as a church to, to do and to be and to engage in by your Holy Spirit through your word, Lord, as a child of God. Help us and grow us here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, turn with me again to the book of Titus. I'm excited to go through this book. We're going to run through it very quickly here today, all three chapters. Let me tell you a little bit about the background of the book. Titus is this man that we don't really know a whole lot about from the Bible. First of all, he's not mentioned in the book of Acts, which is kind of unusual. Uh, uh, as Paul is writing this letter to Titus, and you would think that somebody who was in the book of Acts uh, would be one of his uh, major p- companions. But we know that um, uh, this Paul, he, or this, excuse me, this Titus, he traveled with Paul. And uh, he used Paul to deliver, now check this out, he used Paul probably to deliver the second letter of Corinthians to the Corinthians. And you say, oh, okay, well, that's great. Was he, was he a hiker? Was he a walker? No. Well, of course, all of them probably were at that time. But what's interesting about that is that was a really severe letter. <laughs> and so if you were sending a, a severe letter to someone or to a group of people, who would you entrust with that? Someone with great ability to speak, listen to this, in truth and love. Hard things, truthful things, lovingly. And apparently Titus was one of uh, these kinds of guys who uh, had that ability to deliver hard messages in a loving way. He was given this letter and sent on. Well, he also was sent to Crete, the island of Crete, out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, a beautiful place, but at the time that this was written, in around 62 AD, a very immoral place. It's out in the middle of the Mediterranean, and he was sent to Crete, eventually, 2 Corinthians 12 tells us, to be a model to the Christians there, to be a model to the Christians there. And so, uh, there again, uh, we see something and uh, know something a little bit about this man, Titus. He apparently had been one who was growing significantly in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
and he modeled it out in his life. It came out in his life, and Paul sent him there to take on a massive undertaking, something that you would say would be humanly impossible to establish this church there on the island of Crete. Well, several other things we see about uh, this man, uh, but we're going to get right into it now. In verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul calls himself a bondservant of God, a choosing, a choice to be a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, listen to this, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, according to the faith of God's elect. There is this faith. There is this gospel. You could look in Jude chapter 3. There, the gospel that was delivered once for all to the saints, this body of, um, uh, of uh, truth that has been delivered by God through Jesus Christ to people, acknowledged uh, or uh, given to the, or according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. And here you go. Don't you love this? If you're sitting here and you're listening and watching, this is in hope of eternal life. That's what's at the end or even the now of the Christian. It's this hope of eternal life. We see Uh, don't we, and know that for the Christian, we have this hope of being in the presence of the Lord for eternity. And what a fantastic thing. And we want that, and we love that. But what about now? Eternal life begins at the time that you surrender your life to Christ. And so there is this time in which we think something in the future, we have eternal life, going to heaven in the future, but our, our eternal life is now. And eternal life is not just uh, some place will be, but the person who will will share life with. And that's what Christianity is all about even now, eternal life. What am I talking about? Well, there's this Greek word here, hope of eternal life, aenios. If I'm saying that wrong, Greek scholars, sorry. It's a word and can only be used and applied to God. William Barclay says this about that word and the, and, uh, the hope of eternal life uh, which we have. He says this, the Christian offer is nothing less than the offer of a share in the life of God. It's the offer of God's power for our frustration. Anybody feel frustrated this week? It's the offer of God's power for our frustration, of God's serenity for our disquiet. Anybody disquieted this week? Of God's truth for our guessing, of God's goodness for our moral failure, of God's joy for our sorrow. The Christian gospel does not in the first place, listen to this, offer an intellectual creed or a moral code. It offers life. The very life of God. That's what we're talking about here. We do have eternal life, but we have life eternally. It's this life that we share by and through Jesus Christ, according to the Holy Spirit, this communion with God that we have. It's a hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, thank you, Lord, for that promise. 
promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Paul says, was committed to him. Notice, dear folks, <laughs> it's fantastic to have experiences that the Lord orchestrates, but what does God choose to manifest to the world his eternal life? His word. And we are all called, not just the person behind this pulpit here today, but we're all called to preach, to give people knowledge, to persuade others in the gospel. Of course, God does all of the converting and regeneration, and yet we're called to preach and to teach and to tell people and to proclaim that we can come back to God through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Well, this letter in verse 4 is written to Titus, a true son in our common faith. You see that. I told you there was more written about Titus, and here's one. Paul apparently uh, 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 shared with him, and he became a Christian through Paul, and is a real son in their common faith. Again, common faith, Jude 3. He starts with this famous, or a famous greeting, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Listen to what he did with Titus. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should, what is he doing? Set in order the things that are lacking. And apparently in Crete, there were several things lacking. First of all, I want you to appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And you know this from the book of Acts and elsewhere. As Paul went preaching and teaching, he set up elders or leaders in the different cities, in the different fellowships, so that they could lead and guide in the Word of God and in the, uh, uh, the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we've tried to do that. We've set up a board of elders, and they pray and talk to each other and try to keep the spiritual pulse of our fellowship, and uh, other uh, churches are doing it the same way. Here's the requirements for an elder. We went through these in Timothy. By the way, let me just take a little uh, rabbit trail here. What, we, what am I trying to do today here? I'm trying to so show you what a sound church should look like. Paul, in this book of Titus and other places, gives us a blueprint. Is every church perfect? No. Do some churches have flaws? Of course. But here is the blueprint, the pattern for which we are to follow. And here he first says that you should set up elders. Titus, we've tried to do that. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now that's a mouthful. And some who would say, uh, elders, uh, or who would talk about elders, would say, my goodness, 
I don't think I would want to uh, uh, strive to attain to be an elder, and yet the Bible tells us it's a good thing to do. And because there's so much that I have to do. See, and that's our mistake. Just like the Sermon on the Mount, it's not so much what you do, it's who you are and are becoming in Christ. And for the elders, look, one of the major things is that they would have faithful children. In other words, don't neglect your ministry at home. Share and love and serve together and worship together. Bishops must have a good reputation and be a great steward of God. He holds the mysteries of God and he hands them out to other people. He's not self-willed or quick-tempered. And look, he's hospitable. We talked about that last week at the end of Hebrews. Finally, as you get down into verse 9, and as I read, he has been taught. Are you catching that? There's great study and um, uh, pouring over the scriptures and learning and growing and being taught by others and accepting that teaching. Why? So that he could turn around and under sound doctrine or with sound doctrine do a couple things. Exhort and encourage people. That's what an elder does. He exhorts and encourages and he convicts those who contradict. He's always ready to give an answer for those or for the hope that lies within him. He is always when ideas that contradict the biblical worldview is able to share and to love in a convicting way. What else? For there are many insubordinate. What's he talking about? Well, there were many, uh, apparently, in Crete and other places that were idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. In other words, Jewish folks who either, like the Hebrew Christians, had converted to Christianity or still were in the uh, Jewish faith. They talk and they deceive. They have trouble grasping, folks, the grace of God. They talk and they deceive, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households. Why would he say that? Because, remember, there were meetings of Christians in houses. And so these folks, some of them would go round to other places, just like in 1 Timothy, and preach Jewish legalism or man-made traditions that get you to God or some sort of mysticism or Gnosticism. And here, Paul is telling Titus, excuse me, their mouths must be stopped because they subvert whole household. That's why it's so important to receive sound biblical teaching so that when something is counterfeit or contrary to the grace of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ that's written in his word, folks in households can recognize it. Teaching, these folks would teach things which they ought not, verse 11, for the sake of dishonest gain. There's always people in Christendom who like to gain from the gospel. You can turn on Christian TV in many places and see lots of this. Verse 12, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Well, that certainly was true in Crete. But I think the Bible tells us that we are guilty of those sorts of things. We've lied. 
We've done things that miss the mark. We've been lazy about things. We've partaken in things we shouldn't have or overpartake in things we shouldn't have. So this testimony is true, the writer says. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them. Talk with them. Show them that this is not the way. Show them when, when people are slipping back under the doctrines of, of something else other than the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Show them. Speak with them. Talk it out with them that they may be sound in the faith. That's the goal. The goal is not to win arguments. The goal is that they would be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turned from the truth. There were people in uh, the Jewish world who loved to debate about genealogies and uh, the Old Testament genealogies and focus and major on the minor issues. And here, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, don't be, give heed to these Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the church truth. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. He's talking here, folks, about food and the issue of food in the Jewish, now Christian world. Could I eat this thing? Was this thing kosher? Was this thing not kosher? No, we know from all places of the Bible that all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. You see, there's even those in the church whose mind and conscience can be defiled. Jesus spoke of this in the wheat and the tares parable. Well, these folks, verse 16, profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Interesting, right? What is the job? What is the mission of the elders? Is to teach sound doctrine, to uh, exhort one another uh, as uh, uh, we come together, exhort them in the faith so that they can go out in the highways and byways of life with the ideas that are biblical and express to people who've been mixed up in different philosophies and ideas that, are, that contradict Jesus or the gospel so that they could be believers and sound in their faith. And so they wouldn't have to just profess to know God, but they know God really. And the Bible tells us that without faith, without faith, right? It's impossible to please God. Without faith, our works aren't anything, aren't anything lasting. And here, it says they may work, but they deny them in their works, and these are abominable, disobedient, and disqualified. Now look at this in chapter 2. Here's a quality of a sound church. Here's what those elders should be striving to do. And oh, by the way, you guys just hang on because we have something. There's something here for this week and for these times. Look at this, chapter 2. But as for you, Speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Hey, uh, Titus. Hey, elders. Speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And then find the older men, the more mature men, someone like me. That the older men might be what? Sober or serious 
reverent. Find a place uh, where they're revering God and constantly in their life, even though they like to have fun and, and joke around maybe, but they're reverent towards God. They're temperate. They're sound in faith, in love, in patience. Those are what the older men are like. And you know what? I need to take stock of myself as I uh, uh, participate with God and His Holy Spirit through the Word. Am I living my life like this? Are we becoming, as a fellowship, folks who are sober and reverent and temperate and sound in faith in love? And here's one that's tough for me, in patience. Well, what about the older women? Yes, teach them, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not speaking ill of people, not smearing people, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young woman, they teach them to love their husbands and to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, Good, obedient to their own husbands. That means submissive, and that's not a bad word. The husbands lead. How do they lead? They they lead in service. They lead as they lay down their lives for their wives, like Jesus has done for us. And the wives submit to that. Not a bad word. They lean into that. They grow in that. And they help their mate Lead spiritually that the why, that the word of God may not, blasp- may not be blasphemed. Do you see how important it is not only that we uh, believe the right things, but that we spend time with the Lord, we become transformed, and our lives are the right things. Likewise, do this, he says to Titus, exhort the young men. Exhort the young men. Exhort the young men. Don't ignore the young men. Exhort them. Exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity. In, be, uh, show reverence and incorruptibility. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. This is what we should be doing as the church. By the way, did you notice back in uh, verse 3 that the women were to teach the younger women, not Titus? Well, of course that's appropriate, right? Of course that's appropriate. And here we have four groups of people, older men, younger men, older women, Younger women. In other words, it covers the whole church. I want you to see something, too. And if you're um, an elder in this church, and uh, uh, we have elders, (laughs) catch this in verse 6 of chapter 2, or excuse me, verse 7 of chapter 2. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. One commentator says this, a church will never rise higher than its leadership. A church will never rise higher than its leadership. And oh my, my, have I been convicted this week. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Why? So it shows itself out in the flock. A lot of people come up to me and they say, my goodness, 
your boys sure, and daughter too, but your boys sure look like you. (laughs) Your boys sound like you, and your boys talk like you, and your boys walk like you. And yet, you know, some of you don't look like me, and don't talk like me, and why is it? It's because they're with me. They're my kin, and they're, they're my family, and they're with me a lot, or I'm with them a lot. Some places, it's probably not a good thing. But here's the point. Are we as leaders showing ourselves to be a pattern of good works? The Bible tells us that we were saved by faith, the grace of God, by faith alone, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But we were saved to do good works, Ephesians 2.10. So there are these works that show a pattern to the world. Are we Christ-like? Are we humble? Are we living what we're preaching? Are we being a pattern? In doctrine, we should be studiers, showing integrity there and reverence and incorruptibility. Is, is our speech sound that won't be condemned? Can we have outsiders looking at us, others who don't know the Lord, and say to us, man, you should be ashamed of yourself for speaking that way? Or is our speaking and our conduct, even if people don't agree with us, above shame and reproach? How about this, folks? This is a quality of a sound church. Here he says in verse 9, exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, uh, our Savior, in all things. How about this one? The qualities of a sound church show us that bondservants to their masters are obedient. Now, we don't have very, uh, that in the United States anymore. And yet, our equivalent now is that oftentimes we're employer or employees to our employers. Guess what it says to do? Be well-pleasing in all things. Don't talk back to your boss or your supervisor. Don't steal or pilfer. Don't take the pens at work and say, they're my, you know, no one cares. Don't take the paper clips. Be a, 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 integral. Be, have integrity. Show all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God. That phrase in the Greek actually means embellish with honor. You know what a quality of a sound church is? Check this out. It doesn't even happen in the church. That's why there's no four walls for the church. Well, there's other reasons, but this is one uh, indicator that there's no four walls for the church. Check this out. The qualities of a sound church is when they go out in the marketplace, they're the greatest employees you could ever hire. They work as unto the Lord, which is a greater standard than a boss. They don't talk back in the wrong sense. They submit to the boss, and they are pleasing, and they don't steal, and they give you an honest uh, workday for the wage that they're receiving. So if that they work eight hours, they don't work five and steal three. Get me? One of the ways in which we show that the Lord is working in our life is what we do at our workplaces. 
amazing, right? Well, now here you get to the part that I've been trying to drive us to. What fuels the church? What trains the people at the church? What instructs the people at the church or who might be a better way of saying it? Here we say this, or here, excuse me, Paul writes this to Titus, excuse me, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. One commentator describes grace this way, God lavishes favor on undeserving sinners. God lavishes favor on undeserving sinners. And for a long time, folks, I thought the grace of God only impacted our salvation. Why did I think that? Because I knew Ephesians 2 and 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So how do you enter in to the family of God? By grace. And for several years, I thought, well, that's all there is to the grace of God. And yet, as you pour out and look, or excuse me, as you pour over the scriptures and look, you'll see that the grace of God, God's ability to lavish favor on undeserving sinners, is not just for us to enter the family of God. How about this? Taken straight from Bob Hoekstra's Day by Day by Grace. Great uh, 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 devotional, the best I've ever uh, used or seen. Not only do you have the initial grace of God, but you have an ongoing grace of God. Last week in Hebrews 13.9, we saw that scripture. It says that the heart is established by grace. If you're establishing a marriage or a home or a business... Does it happen all in one day? No. And so your heart is being established, this is the sanctification process, by grace. And then 2 Peter 3.18 tells us this, that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In order to grow in the Christian life, we need God's grace. He lavishes that. We've been uh, spent several months now reading Hebrews where it says that the new covenant is grace, not law. In fact, in Hebrews 10.20, it says there's a new and living way which he consecrated for us. And in Acts 20.24, 20, uh, the writer there says, The ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was his ministry, to testify to the gospel of grace of God. That's what our ministry is, to testify to you, to the gospel and the grace of God. How about this? There's an ability to God's grace. Acts 20, 32. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, build you up. God's grace builds you up and gives you an inheritance. And then we get to Titus 11 through 13. What else does God's grace do? Well, here it tells us that the grace of God brings salvation, has appeared to all men. We know that. Jesus Christ and his gospel teaching us. Are you catching it? Just circle that word. What, does, what is another function of God's grace? 
God's grace teaches us. God's grace is not wimpy. God's grace does not allow or call for licentiousness. In other words, when people start to learn about the grace of God, they start to say, well, great. God lavishes his favor on us as sinners. I'm going to just sin like crazy and live like hell. The Bible speaks nothing of that. Here, the grace of God that teaches us, teaches us what? To deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. In order for us to be filled up with God, are you catching it? We must be emptied out of the old and filled with the new. And so he denies, helps, or, or grace of God denies ungodliness and worldly lust, so that we should live what? Soberly. Of course that means don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. But it also means to be serious and to live according to his righteousness, righteously and godly in the present age. And that's no easy feat, is it, folks, in the present age? And yet, what do we need? And my friend John Kennedy prays it all the time. We need God's grace. God's grace, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you catching this? I want you to catch this. Think now. Do you see what God's grace does? God's grace keeps us looking for the return of Jesus Christ. Listen, our great and final and best and perfect reward. In other words, the grace of God is bringing you rewards. And most importantly, the person and work of Jesus who's going to come and rule and reign here and we're going to rule and reign with him. Well, what else happens here by the grace of God? By the way, the word grace of God here, it means teaching like a parent teaches a child or like a teacher teaches a student. You get that? So grace in that sense does this. It teaches, it encourages, it corrects, it disciplines. Grace is a teacher in that sense. We talked about this several weeks ago or a couple weeks ago. Chastening means you're a child of God. Embrace it. It helps you to grow. That's teaching. Even the chastening of the Lord is by grace. He teaches. He encourages. He corrects. He disciplines. Well, as we go on in verse 14, it says that he gave himself, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Catch it. The redemption of God is by grace. The buying back of us, his treasure, to make us reconciled with him, to be reconciled with him for eternity, and then to sanctify us and to put us back in the game like a great coupon, as I always say, is by the grace of God, the redemption of God through Jesus Christ, redeem. And then purify for himself. Again, sanctification is by grace. Look who you are, folks, in Christ. Look who you are. Quit thinking of yourselves as somebody who's lesser or worse or anything like that. On one hand, we know that we're a sinner saved by grace. But on the other hand, we know that we're his special people. And we're his own. 
What are we doing, or what is he creating in us? A zealousness for good works at the end of verse 14, chapter 2. Now listen, he tells the church, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Many people have said uh, that for everyone studying the ministry, and I would dare say that that's all of you, you're all ministers, that you would know this chapter, chapter 2, 11 through 15, understand it and cooperate with God, His grace, and ask for it and seek it to be uh, taught by Him, to be encouraged by Him, to be corrected by Him, to be disciplined by Him, all by the grace of God. Now, let me just remind you something. Chapter 1, verse 3. What is one great thing that he's going to do in order to help you in the grace of God? They're going to be people who are going to preach and to teach the Word of God. You're going to keep your heart and mind in the Word of God, and when you need help, or on Sundays as well, you're going to hear preaching, and you're going to reach out, and you're going to study the Word, and look what's going to happen. You're going to be trained by saving grace 11 through 15. Remember, how are we transformed? By the renewing of our mind, Romans 1, 2, 1, excuse me, 12, 1 and 2 says. How beautiful is that? God, God's grace has such wonderful and beautiful ability. He gives internal inheritance to his children and to build up our lives here for great service according to his spirit and increasing our fruitfulness, the grace of God. Do you see it? Do you need it? Of course, we all need it. Well, then we go on to chapter 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey. Hmm. Well, that's interesting since that's come up this last two weeks. I got to tell you, quite frankly, last Sunday, I never knew we would be in this position to preach over the internet, to be uh, out of our offices in downtown Pittsburgh or wherever you are, and to be at home and working. I never thought we'd be there. And yet the authorities asked us to be subject to, or excuse me, the Holy Spirit asked us here through the writing uh, of Titus, uh, or excuse me, writings of Paul to Titus by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, remind us to be subject to rulers and authorities. Of course, if rulers and authorities ask us to do something that's against God, we don't participate. And yet, there are these two things here at work. Don't forsake assembling together, the Bible tells us, versus being subject to rulers and authorities. Now, some may disagree with me here. I don't think our um, uh, governor and our president and our local officials have some nefarious reason to ask us to be separate here this week. And so, as the elders have prayed for this we have, and prayed about this, we've decided that we would be good neighbors and good citizens and be subject to the rulers and the authorities in this matter to obey. Just as chapter 3 asks us to. Now, if the rulers and authorities ask us to close our doors and never to come back here again under penalty of death or imprisonment, you see, that would put us in a different category. 
So here we are, and we, I'm asking, or excuse me, the scriptures are asking you to be subject and to be reminded to be subject to the rulers and authorities to obey. You could even go and look in Romans 13. And what else to do? Is this pertinent and on point for this week? For folks who have been trained in the grace of God, with elders who care about the people, with folks who are diving into the Word and spending time with our Lord and Savior and worshiping and praying, be ready for every good work. And as we saw last week and several times before, who is God always interested in and has a heart for? The oppressed and the weak. The ones who can't care for themselves. What have we done this week to reach out to others? Even if we haven't been able to sit with them and physically give them a hug, have we hugged them (laughs) with a phone call or a text? Be ready for every good work. Anything that the Lord sends to us, be ready for that. And then, speak evil of no one. Speak evil of some? Others in the opposite political party of ourselves? Those who don't believe the same things as us? No, speak evil of no one. Be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men, all people right there. That's peaceable uh, uh, word. Peaceable, gentle means a sweet reasonableness. Do you find yourself to be unreasonable? Seriously, examine yourself. Are you always right? Do you have to always be right? Jan might chime in here if she was here today. Do you always have to be right? Do you, is there any reasonableness to the way in which you talk with people? Or is it my way or the highway, always and forever? Here the Bible says to be peaceable or have a sweet reasonableness about yourself and myself, showing all humility to all men. Now here's something I don't want you to miss. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness, isn't that beautiful, and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see something here that a lot of Christians don't get. Are you seeing this? We are to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable and gentle, showing all humility to all men. I bet some of us have said in our hearts right here, Oh, I'm not sure I can do that for that group of people or for that person because they are blank, a jerk, mean, in the opposite party. Whatever we're saying in our hearts, catch this. He said, remember, we ourselves were also foolish once, disobedient and deceived, serving lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, and a bitter, legalistic, Hard, crusty person, when they get up against people who don't believe them, guess what they do? They act spiritually superior. But I want you to see something. 
Here he says, remember what you also once were, and instead of having your chest puffed up, what he's saying is, be grateful. Be grateful that, I didn't, that you weren't kept in that place. And so when you get around others who don't believe you, or like you do, or who are in a lower socioeconomic class, or look different than you, or live across the tracks, you show humility in Christ. That's what grace does. Because we know the kindness and love of God, our Savior towards us, appeared Therefore, it's not by works, verse 5 tells us, of any righteousness which we have done. We could never brag. People brag, folks, in the Christian church. Oh, man, they think in their hearts. Can you believe this? I served. I swept up the church. What did Gertrude do? She never did anything. And we start to think like that. And yet here, the Bible says, you're accepted by God. Not based on what you've done or your righteousness, but by his righteousness. But according, and according to his mercy, he saved us. He held back from us what we deserved to save us. He held back from us what we deserved to save us. And he washed, regener- we were saved through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit in our life. We became born again and cleansed, washed by all that God has done by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Spirit coming to live in our lives. There it is. There's Christianity right there in chapter 3. See, folks, the grace of God knows this and teaches uh, the children of God these Things and knits them to our very being so that we can go out and do great works by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Well, look at this. This is a faithful saying. Well, excuse me, before I go on, notice that he, verse 6 of chapter 3, he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He didn't just give us a little, he gave us everything through Jesus Christ our Savior, that we have been justified by his grace, declared not guilty. You see, we come into the Christian life by the grace of God. We are justified, declared not guilty by the grace of God, and then we're built up and sent out by the grace of God. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, that we would have the grace of God in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for it. Well, having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I read you the William Barclay commentary. Not only is that life eternal, but it's life. It's a sharing of life with God. And this is a faithful saying, verse 8, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. (laughs) You catching that? What should a church be doing? affirming these things constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. It's a fascinating phrase in the Greek. You know what that means? It's as if a marketplace owner, like a grocery store owner, was out in front of his shop advertising. 
That's the phrase there in the Greek, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. We should be zealous for good works under the grace of God. We should be zealous. These things are good and profitable to men. What should we be doing in these times? Maintaining good works. Loving people. Checking on people. Going to the grocery store for people. Praying together. Loving together. Sharing together. We can do that. We don't have to be in the same place, although it's nice. We don't have to be in the same place Those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Why? It's a witness to an unbelieving world. Why is the grace of God building us in this way, propelling us in this way? The love of Christ compels us. Why Why is the love of Christ, the grace of God, compelling us in this way? Because he cares that other people come into his kingdom and live with him and share life with him. What a beautiful Father and God we serve. Well, look at this. Here's some tough stuff, but I hope we're honest with ourselves in these. Look in verse 9. Avoid, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and striving about the law. Don't fight about these things. They're foolish, he says. Why? Because they're unprofitable and useless. In fact, verse 10, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. In other words, avoid people who like to argue about unimportant issues. Talk to them about the things of the faith. Point out to them that these are foolish disputes. Divisive people, you know what they do? They go from person to person in the church trying to get them to believe what they believe on some of these minor issues, and they cause division. And when that happens, that's not the way God wanted or made the church. Look, if you've been divisive in that way, repent. If I've been divisive in that way, I need to repent and come back. Why? Because such a person is warped and sinning Self being self-condemned. It's a serious issue to be divisive in the body of Christ. If you're minoring on the major, or excuse me, if you're majoring on the minors and you've caused people to divide over it, it's a serious, serious thing. And the Bible tells us to avoid this. Well, final messages. When I send Artemis to you, verse 12 of chapter 3, or Titus. Chickas, I couldn't say it last time we went through this in Philemon. Be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, glad that lawyers are getting a shout out, and Apollos on their journeys with haste, that they may lack nothing. I want you to see something about Paul and Titus and the people who were first century Christians. I want you to see this. They didn't just know the doctrine. They knew people. And they loved people. 
and they had friends, and there were others they could count on, and they were a body, and they loved, and they believed together, and cried together, and grew together, and loved together, and traveled together, and did things together. Here, really, the only one we know uh, some about is Tychicus. How do you say it? But anyway... He was a companion of Paul on Paul's third missionary journey, Acts 20 tells us. He was a dear brother, a faithful servant, Ephesians tells us. He was probably with Paul in his first Roman imprisonment, Colossians says. And in Philemon, he was sent with the servant, Onesimus, with a letter asking Philemon to receive this slave who'd stolen from him. And so, he's about the only one uh, we really know about. I think he was also with Paul when Paul went from Corinth to Jerusalem to deliver the gift. Now, check this out, and we'll close. We're going to have Beck come back up here and lead us in a song. I said all this. I went through all this. I was convicted to do all this because of verse 14 of chapter 3. I'm not sure there's a better verse for us this week. Let our people, the people in the church, learn, also learn to maintain good works. Maintain good works. Keep doing your good works, the ones that you're doing, no matter what. And to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. I saw one gentleman in the um, a texting string that we have for men's fellowship here today offered to go and buy groceries for others. The church here has people uh, and has offered the community to go out and buy groceries or other things that we could find and water for those in need around here at the church. But we are people who are uniquely positioned For this virus and this whatever you want to call it, this temporary pause, this shutdown, whatever you want to call it, we're uniquely positioned because we have the grace of God. And the grace of God teaches us to teach others in our fellowship to meet not just needs of others, but urgent needs. Urgent needs. Obviously, none of us here are arguing that you should be go and compromise yourself in any way. But the Bible says that we are to keep our spiritual antennas up, so to speak, to be led by the Spirit to find urgent needs and meet them. That we wouldn't be unfruitful. So I just ask us, Where is it that you see people hurting urgently? Where is it that the Lord's speaking to you? Another person in our fellowship called some of the people that were living alone this week, just got in the directory and started calling them. What more of an urgent need is there than to know that you're not alone? Of course we're not alone through Jesus Christ, but to have others come and say hi and hi, uh, how are you doing and we love you. One of the pastors from 
Calvary Chapel Hawaii, I think, or one of the leaders there of Calvary Chapel Hawaii earlier this week put something on social media is to tell people you love them in this time. (laughs) There's nothing more critical than knowing that you're loved. That's meeting an urgent need, folks. And we're uniquely positioned by the grace of God to do this. So as I pray and we close out, I urge you, I beg you, I ask you to read through Titus this week with a heart of knowing that the last thing that the Holy Spirit asked Paul to write to Titus to tell his church in an ungodly place was to maintain good works and to meet urgent needs. (laughs) I wasn't here for Pearl Harbor. I've read about it, certainly. But I was here for 9-11. That was pretty urgent, to say the least. And whether you believe this virus is as serious as folks say, or you don't believe that, or whatever you believe, listen, the reality is that we're in a place that America's never been in before. The world's in a place that the world's never been in before. God says the people of God will be those who see and understand and then meet urgent needs of others. So let's do it. Ask the Lord to show you what you can do. Reach out. Love. Be graceful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your grace is lavished upon us, not just to come into the family, but to live in the family and to be built up. And oh, by the way, Lord, you give us grace to go and serve others in urgent times. We need your grace. We need you, Lord, desperately here today and always. Whether it's good times, quote, or bad times, quote, Lord, we always need you. And thank you for this day. We love you, and we know it's because you first loved us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.